text this morning, Paul is going to answer and address further objections that one might pose in respect to God's sovereignty over salvation. Last week, we addressed a major reality. And that reality is that if God were to enact His perfect justice, then every one of us would be in serious trouble. No one deserves salvation. Because outside of Jesus, every person who has ever lived deserves nothing other than the wrath of God. Therefore, it is hardly a matter of injustice for God to show mercy to some and yet not to all. Salvation is an expression of God's divine mercy and compassion. In the first 18 verses of chapter 9, which we unpacked last week, we saw how God had mercy on Moses, but condemned Pharaoh. Was that just? He elected Israel and rejected all other nations. Was that just? He chose Isaac over Ishmael. Was that just? He he chose Jacob over Esau. Was that just? Our, Our text this morning is going to answer those questions. In verses 19 through 21, notice how the present objection is worded. If God has mercy upon some and not upon hardened others, then, then why does God find fault? And why does He blame the sinner? Notice the objection, verse number 19. You will say to me, why does He still find fault? For who resists His will? On the contrary... Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing say, will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does the potter have authority over the clay to make for some lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, Paul is not the first to use this kind of language or analogy. We, we find it in the writing of, of the prophets. For instance, the prophet Isaiah uses the same analogy in Isaiah chapter 64. There he says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, carry us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who awakens himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have melted us into the hand of our iniquities. Then it says, but now, O Yahweh, you are our Father. We are the clay. And you are potter. And all of us are the work of your hand even jeremiah wrote in jeremiah chapter 18 he says then i went down to the to the potter's house and behold he was making something on the wheel but the vessel that he was making of clay was ruined in the hand of the potter 
So he turned around and made it into another vessel, according to what was right in the eyes of the potter to make. Then the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares Yahweh. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Now, in Romans 9, uh, 19 through 21, we're going to find no less than a series of five hypothetical questions in response to the sovereignty of God. And so what I want you to know before we look at these is I want you to understand that God welcomes our questions. God is ready to receive our questions and our concerns. Every single Sunday morning, I take time to teach all of our children the Bible lesson for that week. And two weeks ago, I taught the kids the story about Jesus and his encounter with the rich young ruler. The young man came and asked a good question. He asked a a sincere question. That individual asked the right question to the right person and received the right answer. Yet according to Scripture, as far as we know, he left sad and distraught. Why do I share that with you? Again, I want you to understand that while God welcomes our questions and our concerns, we cross the line when we begin to question the sovereignty of God. The creature has no right to sit in judgment over the Creator. God is the Creator of men, much as a potter is the Creator over his clay vessel. Neither vase nor pot has any right to complain and ask the one that molded it, why'd you do that? The potter has every right to do what he pleases with the clay. The Creator has every right to do what he pleases with his creation. Ultimately, it is God who determines whether a person will be a Moses or a Pharaoh. However, this does not excuse us or release us from any responsibility. Pharaoh had ample opportunity to learn, to see, to hear, to witness the true God and respond in trust. And yet, he resisted and rebelled every single occasion. And here's where we struggle. This is what we wrestle with. We try to place God's sovereignty against human responsibility. However, even though our limited minds may not be able to fully grasp them both, God's sovereignty, human responsibility, neither one denies the other. To fully understand God, we would have to be equal to God. It's as absurd and ridiculous as a clay pot being equal to the potter that made it. 
And so Paul asks more questions about God's sovereignty. In verse 22, he says, And what if God, wanting to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction? And in order that He might make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. Oh, these two verses are so rich. There's so much there. Having just stated that God is like a potter, Paul now applies the illustration of God's sovereignty for different people. And so we must never think that that God enjoyed took pleasure or delighted in seeing the, a tyrant like Pharaoh. No, in, in Exodus chapter 3, God said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I've heard their cry. I know their sorrows. And yet, God endured with much patience. Look at, look at the term in verse 22 where it says vessels of wrath. Vessels of wrath or the objects of His wrath are unbelievers. Now, especially within this context, He's talking about Jewish unbelievers. So God has been patient with their antagonism. He's been patient with their rebellion. He's been patient with their blasphemy and with their hatred. See, God is willing to put up with evil and evil people for a long period of time. Why? The text answers the question, why? In fact, there's three reasons given in these two verses. Why is he patient? Why is he willing to endure with much patience? Well, first of all, to demonstrate his wrath. To make known his power. And then to make known the riches of his glory. These vessels of wrath represent unbelieving Jews. And today, it represents the unrepentant individual, whether they're Jew or Gentile. And so, the text says that God endured with much patience vessels of wrath. My translation reads, having been prepared for destruction. Now look at what yours says. Let's see if I can get yours covered. It's important for us to understand the meaning of that verb, having been prepared. If you have the New International Version, the New King James, or if you're reading from the New American Standard, that verb is rendered prepared. New Living Translation has it as who are destined. Original KJV, yours says fitted. So what does this mean? Here's what we, what we often don't see unless we really dig into it and have other resources and try to understand Greek and, 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 and all of that. This Greek language, this verb is in a passive form. So, so Romans 9.22 does not suggest that God makes us vessels of wrath. No, it's in a, in a passive form. And I'm really nervous today because Dr. Bob Utley is right there. 
He was my professor in college, and, and I'm afraid if he's taking notes or if he's critiquing me, I don't know. But if I get this wrong, Dr. Bob, just shout it out and let me know. The verb is in the middle voice. What does that mean? For something to be in the middle voice, it means that the subject, and in this verse the subject is the vessels of wrath, unbelievers, unrepentant individuals. So to be in the middle voice means that the subject is both the cause and the focus. Another way to put it, the subject is both the agent and the experiencer. So which means that the vessels of wrath prepared themselves for destruction. Scripture is clear. We prepare ourselves for wrath while God prepares us for glory. Well, that should have got a pulse and an awakening from somebody. That's great news. Again, verse 23. And in order that He might make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. Now here's that word, prepared again. But in this instance, that verb is rendered in the active voice. So to be in the active voice means that the subject causes the action. So in this case, the subject that's doing the action is, is He. Who's He? God. God is the one that's doing the action. So, so Scripture is clear that no person, no individual is saved from, apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Because God sovereignly requires humans to respond to His grace. But as shocking as this may sound, you need to understand that the primary purpose of salvation is not the benefit that it brings to the individual who receives salvation. No, the primary purpose of salvation is the honor that it brings God who offers salvation. Believers are saved without any merit or work of their own. In order that God may make known His glory. His glory is made known through His grace, His mercy, compassion, and the forgiveness that He alone grants to those who come to Christ. And God has the absolute right to reveal and to demonstrate His character in any way that He chooses. He has that right. Whether it is revealing and demonstrating His just condemnation of unbelievers, or or whether it's Him revealing and demonstrating His gracious redemption to those who believe. God has the right. In Moses and Israel, God revealed the riches of His mercy. In Pharaoh and Egypt, He revealed His power and his wrath. And since neither deserved any mercy, God cannot be charged with any injustice. Ultimately, of course, God's purpose 
was to form his church from both Jews and Gentiles. Look at verse 24. Paul says, even us. So Paul's identifying himself and all other believers as God's vessels of mercy. He says, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. So in in showing mercy and in judging sin, God makes no distinction based upon race, ethnicity, nationality, or intelligence. No, God distinguishes only between those whom He has chosen and those whom He has not. I I get it. Like, I see the tension. We work through it every single week, it feels like, while studying through Romans. This is a hard truth to accept. But it goes against our natural mind and and our natural way of thinking. To us, it seems so unfair. It's so hard to understand, much less be able to fully explain. But this truth is fully biblical. There will always be tension between acknowledging God's complete sovereignty and in acknowledging human responsibility. That tension will always be there. But we can only believe what the Scripture teaches, accepting in our hearts what we cannot explain with our minds. So while Scripture makes clear that God elects and rejects solely based upon His divine sovereignty, Scripture also makes it equally clear that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God has no desire for one person to perish. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 9 says that the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And yet, without compromising either His holiness or His justice, Jesus assures us in John 6.37 that no one can come to Me unless it has been granted Him from the Father. And all of this was prophesied in the Old Testament. Let's keep reading our text. Paul first quotes from Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. He says, and he says also in Hosea, I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. Then quoting from Hosea chapter 1, verse number 10, Paul says in verse 26, and it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. The prophet just declared that God would ultimately turn away from the Jews and then extend His call of salvation to Gentiles. Then, quoting from Isaiah chapter 10, he quotes Isaiah 10 verses 22 and 23. Paul's reminding us that only a remnant of Israel would be saved. 
while the greater part of the nation would suffer judgment. Paul's purpose is to show that Israel's unbelief was no surprise to God. Their unbelief was in no way inconsistent with God's divine plan for His chosen people and for the world. The text says in verse 27, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Through the number of the sons of Israel, I'm sorry, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute His word on the land thoroughly and quickly. It offers one final quote from Isaiah chapter 1, verse number 9, emphasizing God's grace and sparing the, the remnant. Verse 29 says, And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth or the Lord of hosts had left to us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Paul is saying that were it not for God's graciously preserving a remnant in Israel, then the whole nation would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. What does this all prove? It proves that God was not unjust in saving some and judging others. It proves that God was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies that were given centuries ago. In fact, God would have been unjust if He did not keep His Word and His promise. But He keeps them. Even more than that, these prophecies show that God's election has made possible the salvation of Gentiles to which we should all be like, Amen. This is the grace of God. Think of it like this. At the Exodus, God rejected the Gentiles and chose the Jews so that through the Jews, He might save the Gentiles. And so the nation of Israel rejected His will, but their rejection did not defeat His purpose. The Lord of hosts left us the seed. If God had not spared a remnant of faithful believers, then all of Israel would have been destroyed. God always saved a remnant. Having chosen Israel, God remained faithful to her. If He had not, Israel would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Today, it's true, it's the Gentiles that make up the majority of His church. <laughs> but one day, oh, one day, beautiful, beautiful one day, there will be a great awakening and many Jews will come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So far, to this point, Paul has defended the character of God. He's defended God's character by showing His faithfulness, His righteousness, and His justice. For us, I think that's where we'll draw a line and stop for today. Next week, we'll pick up in verse number 30, which is mind-blowing to me, 
Because verse number 30 is the transition. Verse number 30, Paul transitions from God's sovereignty to human responsibility. And guess what? There's no verse in between. There's no explanation that Paul gives to attempt to clarify the great paradox that exists between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. They just both exist. The question for us today, having seen so many demonstrations of what it means to repent and believe, having celebrated with baptism, having celebrated with the taking of communion, having celebrated through the worship through singing, having celebrated through the worship of our giving, of our offerings, and then of the receiving of the Word of God, there's one less, one more thing to do. That is for each and every one of us to consider God, what's next? What do you want me to do in response to what I've just heard? How can I leave here differently than I came? Decisions to be made. Commitments to be extended. In this time, we're going to sing through another song. Joel and the others will come up on stage. I'm going to pray. I'll be here at the front. We have staff and elders and others on the sides. If you feel more comfortable not coming in front of people, but would like for somebody to pray with you, then go into the sides and they'll love to pray with you. But how will you respond to God's word today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love, for your faithfulness. Thank you for the great privilege of being here today. And God, what is it that you expect and desire from us? What commitments, decisions are there that need to be made in this very place? God, may we not worry about what's happening around us, but may we focus on what's happening within us, and may we make decisions that honor and glorify you. We commit this time unto you. Be pleased by what you see in us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.